and welcome back to Dreaming and Fear. We've again, we slightly haven't done one for a bit, so uh, it's great to be back and um, christening our last pod of 2022. We have just finished a call with Brandon Presser, who's written a fantastic book called The Far Land on the mutineers of the bounty. Um, most of you will have heard of uh, Blythe and his. Um, his survival journey, but we sort of focus on um, Brandon's book and the mutineers. Do you want to sum it up, Max? Uh, yeah, I'd really recommend. I'd really recommend this one. It's got some fascinating details about the sort of psychology of the the, the mutineers themselves. Also, we didn't touch on it in a huge amount of detail, but uh, Brandon was keen to press home the idea that his book is focusing also on the psychology of the Tahitian women who went along with the mutineers. So, you know, a slightly different angle for those of you who are interested in, in, in that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, please give it give it a listen and uh, Merry Christmas. Hope to, to hear you in the new year. We'll leave you in the warm embrace of Brandon. A warm welcome, Brandon. Thank you very much for joining us. You're actually the second explorer we've had, a uh, living explorer anyway, um, on the pod. So thanks for joining us. Do you think that part of your, uh, you know, your, your interesting exploration, was that what drew you to this topic? Oh, certainly. Um, I think, you know, there's a part sort of early in the book uh, where I explain very quickly that it's sort of lamentable that I'm living um, in modern day and not 300 years ago because I, <laughs> I would have gladly battled the uh, the scurvy um, to have uh, the opportunity to truly explore some um, undiscovered destinations. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think that's partly why we've sort of done the pod. It's uh, our release, so to speak. Um, but I guess really going right back to the beginning do you want to give us a bit of background about Blythe and how he sort of became captain of the bounty sure absolutely um so I mean I, sh I should say I think Bly is an absolutely fascinating character and uh you know he appears in the history books many more times um than just the mutiny on the bounty uh he is not the, you know the main character of my book as it focuses mm. more on the mutineers um but basically in short he became captain through nepotism um he was born um very middle class uh even sort of lower middle class um but his father uh, worked as a customs officer at the port. Uh, so he started his naval career very early, uh, and then he ended up marrying a woman of noble birth. Um, and so he actually left the Navy for a bit, uh, worked on merchant vessels, and then was called back to the Navy specifically for this mission because... Uh, his wife's family had actually petitioned the crown uh, to send a vessel to Tahiti to find this legendary breadfruit that supposedly could feed the slaves of the West Indies. So he was put in charge. Mm. Uh, thank you for that brief sketch. And obviously, as you mentioned, the, the uh, book focuses more on the mutineers themselves. Could you just give a brief sketch of perhaps the background of the mutineers? What kind of section of society they came for, came from? Sorry, and pick out a few of the key characters, perhaps. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what I think is very interesting uh, about the men that were on board the bounty is that at this time um, in England, uh, men were pressed into serving aboard vessels, which essentially meant that naval officers would barge into a bar and they would round up a bunch of men and force them to serve. Uh, this was especially during times of war. Every single person aboard the bounty actually volunteered of their own free will, largely because they had heard legends about Tahiti and how it was so beautiful and the women were, you know, beautiful and loose. Uh, so they were all sort of mesmerized by this early idea of paradise and all volunteered to go. And the, the crew themselves were really split in half. Um, Bly made this really big mistake of over-promising um, to all of these uh, royal families and noble families that he would take their children on board. So he had a lot of really inexperienced 15-year-olds that were serving uh, as a way to cut their teeth in the Navy. Uh, and then the other half were hardened seafaring men from very low class uh, birth from all over uh, Ireland, England, and Scotland. Um, and then some of the men that ultimately end up becoming, you know, the key mutineers, they really are from that low caste section of the ship, um, many of whom you really didn't know anything about them. And it was uh, quite difficult trying to puzzle together their family histories because many of them were orphans and, you know, had a better life at sea than they would have on the streets of London. And um, obviously, as you mentioned, it was bound for Tahiti, the, the bounty, uh, shipping goods from Tahiti to the West Indies. Uh, so the men, obviously, when they were on the ship, they became accustomed to the islands for following a five-month labor in Tahiti. Could you tell us a little bit more about this period and, and how did the sort of men get along during this time? Sure, absolutely. So the original uh, voyage was only supposed to be about four months uh, from England to Tahiti, but for a variety of reasons, including storms and departing England at the wrong time, it ended up taking almost a year. Um, so they had to stay for five and a half months to wait for the weather to turn in order to return um, you know, back towards uh, the Caribbean and then ultimately back to England. And so, first of all, they were so glad to just be on land um, that it was a very manic five months of just being so excited to have finally arrived. And they received such a warm welcoming uh, from the Tahitians. What started to happen was really fascinating. Um, there is this custom of... Um, Tau, uh, which is this idea of blood brothers um, in uh, the Tahitian culture, uh, where many of the men were brought into families as, as new relatives, in a way. So, of course, you know, the men uh, had these relationships with the women. Uh, Tahitians have a very different understanding of uh, sex and sexuality, but also they were made to feel so at home that they became essentially family members of those who hosted them and was that i guess a lot of them clearly their aim was to possibly stay in tahiti did that go throughout the ship was was blythe with that mindset as well or did he want to get back to england 
So the only reason that Bly really took this mission, and you can very see it clearly from uh, his logs, was that he was hoping to use this opportunity to really advance himself um, in the Navy and really rise the ranks, because he technically wasn't a captain. He was actually just a lieutenant, um, and he thought that this assignment was quite silly and not very glamorous, but he was you know, hoping that by completing it quickly and completing it well that he would earn the opportunity to become a captain once he got home. So he actually he barely went on land. Hmm. He slept in the ship, and while all the men were getting sunburns and suntans and really darkening their hues, he, he was very pasty up until the day that they uh, had left. And this is even noted in other people's logs. Mm. And could you just clarify for our listeners, did they get the um, sort of sought-after breadfruit in the end, or, or what was the, 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 the sort of outcome there? Right. So the goal was to harvest um, 1,000 cuttings of breadfruit, and the ship was reorganized so that uh, they could have all these cuttings laid out actually where the captain's quarters usually is. So uh, Bly uh, actually slept in a very small room that was repurposed for him so that the, you know, the breadfruit could have all of this space to continue growing. Um, and they had clipped all the cuttings very quickly, but the reason they had to stay was to wait for that change in the weather so that the um, tides would be in their favor. And on, on their way back, we start to see the sort of tensions between both Blythe and uh, his shipmates, particularly Christian. And it seems from, you know, a, a, a lot of sources that probably food was a key contributor there. And I know a sort of cardinal sin from Blythe. He made the mistake of being both captain and purser, the, the person who gave out food. And this sort of did lead to tensions. Can you tell us about those days leading up to it and whether you agree with that sort of critique? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you really take a step back and look at the Bounties Manifest, they were sort of doomed from the start because uh, he had so many ineffectual teenagers on board. Um, and because they had to clear room for all of these eventual cuttings, um, there were no Marines, there was no security officer on board, and there was no purser on board. Mm. So Bly essentially had to be all three. Um, and a purser is essentially in charge of making sure that the budgets uh, stay on track. So they're the ones who uh, decide the food allocations and uh, refitting, you know, when sales need to be fixed and they need to stop at different ports. Um, so it really doesn't make you an attractive uh, captain when you're also um, in charge of everyone's behavior and in charge of uh, not making sure that the project goes over budget. So a lot of people were accusing him of not feeding them enough. Um, and I think the most interesting thing about Bly was that he just had a very short temper um, relative to all the other individuals on board who, you know, sure, there was some rough housing, but um, he was never good at implying uh, his sentiments. He always kind of said exactly what he meant right in that moment. And that really bothered uh, the men uh, aboard the bounty. And I think they were just, they were, they were not homesick in the least. They all wanted to stay in Tahiti. So it was only a mere three weeks after they departed for Jamaica that they mutinied. And so obviously there's a lot of debate around based around things like Bly's character and obviously the, the, the sort of uh, many potential causes. Do you 
agree with Bly's assessment that they were planning it um you know the men were planning it from the beginning because they wanted to go back to Tahiti or, or do you think there are other factors there is a theory um and it is uh in my book that before they departed England Fletcher Christian who is uh the lead mutineer um, that he had heard a story about another mutiny aboard a, a merchant vessel. Uh, his brother was a part of that mutiny. Mm -hmm. And so there is a theory that he sort of had this idea of mutiny in his head all along. Um, but when you actually look at the facts of uh, the commandeering of the vessel that night, sort of around 4 a.m., three weeks after departing Tahiti, it seems to have been a snap decision because uh, the Bounty had a few lifeboats or dinghies on board, and they were going to put Bly and his loyalists in a dinghy, and that first they lowered uh, a smaller dinghy and couldn't fit everyone in, so then they had to wind it back up and put it back on board and lower a bigger one. Um, so it shows that they weren't really planning that carefully, that it, it really just seems that all of a sudden, you know, rising tension, everyone had had enough and Bly had to go. Mm. Mm. And uh, Peter Fitzsimmons, who's written a book on uh, the mutiny, described Bly um, as a tyrant and a brilliant bastard like you don't make them anymore. Um, how far do you think his character... Uh, contributed to the problems he had on board? I think that uh, perceptions of Bly have been a little bit too heavily tinged by Hollywood. Um, you know, there are five films about the mutiny aboard the Bounty, three of which are very well known. And uh, it would be the Marlon Brando film that is perhaps best known. And that is actually not based on true events. It's based on the novel um, written by Nordoff and Hall. And so I think it's really hard to divorce our opinions about Bly when it's been in the zeitgeist for so long that he is this sort of, you know, brilliant bastard. Mm -hmm. um, I don't actually think uh, that he was overly harsh um, when you actually look at the amount of lashings that he recorded in his log relative to all of the other captains that were operating at the time, he actually had less, he was giving out less lashings than other captains. Um, I think he was just um, extremely, extremely immature, and I don't think he grew up with the social graces that the other lieutenants on board had. Mm -hmm. um, so he was sort of this unpolished character who was more of a social climber uh, and could you tell us you mentioned sort of Bly's relationship with the other lieutenants could you sketch out who was in the boat sort of to give us an idea of the who the loyalists were and then obviously you know they went on to 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 achieve this incredible journey and and i was wondering if you could then tell us how that unfolded sure um so there were quite a few teenagers on board that were the children of uh, friends of Bly's wife. And uh, they were, you know, by this time, you know, about 17 years old. They had started on board uh, when they were 15. 
Um, and so they were children of uh, wealthy uh, noble families and wealthy merchants um, that went along with Bly um, and a few professional naval men uh, went along as well. Um, and then about half of the bounty's crew stayed on board, uh, including four individuals who were technically loyalists who had tried to go with Bly, but there just simply wasn't room in the dinghy. Um, so they ended up staying. And and through their logs um, and their accounts, we actually learned quite a lot about what happened that night um, and the journey thereafter. It's often, you know, when you hear about uh, sort of nautical achievements, um, Bly's journey and also Shackleton's uh, James Curd journey are often cited. Which would you say is the most impressive? I know your book obviously doesn't focus on that, but if you if you were to compare well i have to say i mean i I generally write magazine features for a variety of uh, magazines in the u.s and the reason that this was the thing that really stuck out as something that i needed to write a book on was um because of these sort of tertiary elements you know the book doesn't focus on Bly, but oh my gosh you could write an entire book about Bly's overwater journey four thousand miles uh, from being thrown overboard, you know, all the way finally to Batavia, um, Jakarta. Uh, so, so it's it's those tertiary elements that really inspired me. I just found that the backstories of all the minor characters were so incredible, and I, I truly believe what Bly accomplished um, was amazing. Um, he he did have one thing that I think is sort of unusual, uh, which was. You know, you would think constant rain uh, would make the journey harder, um, but I think it's because it rained almost constantly for their forty-plus day journey that he was able to get fresh water, mm-hmm. uh, which ultimately led them to survive. So there was this aspect of luck that helped them too. Sure, and and obviously, yeah, maybe a bit of providence along the way. But just to, before we dive into, you mentioned the other sort of uh, side character so to speak before we dive into those in a bit more detail would you just be able to um sketch out some of the key moments in that four thousand mile journey just for for the end of the listeners that aren't uh, particularly familiar with it sure um so basically what happened is uh you know bly was surprised in the middle of the night he was put into a cutter um with uh gosh 17 18 uh other individuals aboard the bounty um they were all crammed in um to this little vessel um and several days later uh they had about five days worth of food full five full days worth of food for the 18 people uh and a about a week later, they tried to make landfall um, on an island, and the local inhabitants chased them off with spears. And uh, one of the men uh, was speared uh, through the neck and killed and left there. And then at that point, Bly vowed not to make landfall until he had reached a European colony, which um, was essentially Timor. So they actually sailed through the Great Barrier Reef, and once they reached the reef and shallow waters, they were able to um, get out of their vessel and go clamming and crabbing. Um, and then they relaunched uh, through the Arafura Sea, 
um, sort of north of Darwin um, to cross uh, up towards Indonesia um, and uh, finally made it after torrential rain and storms. Yeah, I mean, it's a remarkable um, story. It really is. Your book, though, focuses more on the uh, mutineers who... Um, I mean, they. I guess they knew that as a result, their their lives back in England were, were no more. Um, and they first attempted to resettle in Tabui. I probably butchered that pronunciation. <laughs> um, but then they they, they 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 struggled to actually establish themselves, uh, which led to a division within the group. Um, with some then returning to Tahiti, what was the fate of those men? Right. So after the failed attempt to settle Tubuai, um, they uh, split again um, the mutineers into two groups. Uh, one group uh, stayed, um, hoping that they would never be found, which I think they were. They they really didn't know the fate of Bly, and I think that's something that's important to remember. You know, they they didn't have the nerve to put a bullet through Bly, but instead it cast him away at sea, and they just assumed that you know Bly would never make it. Um, so. Perhaps there was an opportunity for them to stay in Tahiti, but really why they wanted to stay was those blood brother bonds. Um, when they got back, you know, they were treated like royalty um, and they had these, you know, elevated stations. Some of them were already having children with the Tahitian women. Um, so the ones who were sort of mesmerized by their change in luck and what they perceived as good luck you know it, it wasn't really a question for them to leave the ones who were a little bit more paranoid uh were the ones who again set sail those were nine individuals who set sail including fletcher christian and ultimately what happened was Bly made it all the way back to england testified in court and then an ambitious fugitive hunt was launched uh, by a vessel called the Pandora, a war vessel was deployed uh, to search uh, for all of the men, bring them all back to England and hang them for their crimes. Just out of interest, a sort of side question, was that seen as a sort of a, you know, enough of a reason to deploy kind of, I, I, I'm just wondering sort of like resource allocation in the Navy, I mean, to track down these sort of this small group of men, that was obviously seen as a big enough reason, I assume, to deploy a crew and everything. I think it was a point of humiliation. Mm. Um, and I think that this was right before the Napoleonic Wars, yeah. um, when resources weren't as strained. Mm. Um, and because... I, I mean, where, where else in history do you hear of a ship vanishing into thin air, but yet the captain manages, you know, yeah. ships go down, captains die. But I, I think it was such a curious event where Bly made it all the way back mm. to England without his ship that um, they really felt inspired to, um, to do something about it. Mm. Were, there, were, were any of the crew suggesting that they should go back to England with the idea that they thought maybe Blythe had died? Or was that not a not an option? Um, I don't think any of them wanted to go back. Largely, the individuals that made up um, the the bulk of the um, mutineers were those who, um, you know, had lived on the streets of London, uh, who grew up without families, uh, who, 
you know, saw the Navy as an opportunity to have a better life than they would um, in England. So I think having beautiful weather, um, you know, starting families, being treated as royalty, it just it was a no brainer that they all um, wanted to stay. Mm. Mm. And, and um, sorry, okay, okay. how how did they those who stayed in Tahiti? How did they get on? Uh, well, interesting enough. Um, so it, Tahiti um, at that time was a realm ruled by many small, uh, by many chieftains of, of of small clans. I think this absolute power, this notion of ruling the realm, was something that was more distinctly Western. Uh, so Tahiti really at that time was like a microcontinent of many nations. Um, so all of the, um, Tahitian, the Tahitian men and women welcomed the mutineers in different ways. Some were with different tribes. Um, and, and those tribes would, would fight as well. So there's actually on record that uh, one of the mutineers actually killed one of the other mutineers after about a year of living there. And then um, that death was avenged. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't paradise. Um, they, they had their um, disputes. Uh, yeah. And, and to, go, to, to, to go back to the split in the group, so some of them, with, including such a Christian, headed to Pitcairn Island. And, and they weren't found until 1808 um, by the British ship. Uh, with only what they found one British man with no Polynesian men, four women, 24 children. Uh, their fate is sort of very mysterious. Do you know, do you have any idea or the theories what, what, what ended up happening there? Uh, with um, the individuals after they were found, or you mean in the 18 yeah, years of solitude? Yeah, in the, in the solitude in between. Um, so that's what the second half of my book sort of attempts to explore, um, is what exactly happened on Pitcairn Island, um, because there was a rumor of an island that had been charted incorrectly, um, and, and it was based on that rumor that Fletcher Christian rounded up um, eight, other, eight of the other mutineers, um, and then a few Polynesian men and, and some Polynesian women for a total of 28 individuals who sailed aboard the Bounty to Pitcairn. Um, and then um, once they arrived, things went really well at the beginning. Um, uh, and then there was a sequence of very unfortunate events that basically led to divisions uh, within the culture that was growing there. Um, and then it was sort of like a real-life game of Survivor where alliances were drawn um, and of course, instead of voting each other off the island, they were uh, murdering each other. Uh, about four years into living on Pikaren, um, a significant number of them had already been killed. Um, and then um, the numbers, again, uh, dwindled and dwindled, of course, until there was only one mutineer left uh, 18 years later and about. It's 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 not 100% sure, but it's either three or four of the Tahitian women mm. uh, remained. Um, and, and, and so the book um, kind of cobbles all of that together. And I, I hope there are a few potential re readers listening. And I, so I, I don't want to uh, completely ruin it. Yeah, because it's, um, it's quite shocking. Um, and um, it's really the, the dominoes uh, fall. And when you live in a culture so small 
every action has a reaction. Mm. And this might give away too much, but what was the fate of Christian? He was obviously the lead mutineer. Uh, do we know what happened to him? Yeah. So and what I like so much about this story as well is it just doesn't go the way you want it to. Um, and I think that Christian, in the way that Bly had been, you know, uh, somewhat erroneously depicted as a brilliant bastard, um, Christian was the the hero, uh, the brave hero that led the mutiny. And I think at a certain point he was, and he was certainly very charismatic. But what ultimately starts to happen is uh, he's felled by his own paranoia um, and he becomes wickedly reclusive um, and uh, retreats into himself. And rather than being a strong leader, he lets um, unsavory characters start ruling the island uh, in his stead. Um, and uh, he is one of the first to die. And just a, a, a quick one in terms of the source material for this, who's are we relying on whose journals or is it other external sources or? Um, there are a lot of ledgers that remain about the births and deaths during the 18 years of solitude. Uh, there's actually a rumor that one of the mutineers, uh, young, um, kept fastidious records of everything that happened. Um, those records are nowhere to be found, but there is a captain who visited the island later on who wrote a lot about what occurred during those 18 years, and he claims that they are based on Young's records. Uh, beyond that, there are a lot of historians that have used the ledgers to um, flesh out uh, not quite narratives, but bullet points about exactly what happened in those two decades. But more than that, there are a lot of stories as oral history that have been passed down from generation mm -hmm. to generation. Um, and there are children that were born during this time who were six, seven, eight, nine years old, who as adults wrote accounts of their experience watching mm -hmm. their parents murder each other wow. and so forth. Quite harrowing. And and just on that note, uh, not obviously you don't want to give too much away of the book, but would you be able to kind of expand on any hints of the idea of human sacrifice? Oh, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> human sacrifice. I mean, I think what the important takeaway is the clash of cultures uh, mm. when um, the bounty crew arrived on Tahiti. Um, they witnessed a lot of religious rites that were very foreign to Christianity. And the whole chapter of the book in which they're living on Tahiti and the Tahitians are as puzzled uh, by Western tradition as uh, the Englishmen are puzzled by Tahitian tradition is sort of foreshadowing a lot of the cultural issues that take place on Pitcairn years later that are, uh, you know, magnified because there are so few of them that are active players in their own demise. Mm. And you, you visited both Pitcairn and Norfolk Island. How did this shape your book when you were writing it? My trip to Pitcairn was for a magazine article, um, and I really hadn't intended on writing an entire book, um, but it was sort of a 
trip that I, I just couldn't shake its memory. You know, I, I get back from a trip, I write my story for the magazine, and then I move on to the next destination. But this this really stuck with me. I didn't have enough meat on the bone at that point to write um, an entire book. So the following year, I planned a trip to Norfolk Island to meet more individuals who are descendants of the Bounty Mutineers. And a lot of the information um, about Pickhearn and about the Bounty is actually on Norfolk Island instead of Pickhearn Island. So um, they were very different individuals. And um, having visited Pitcairn sort of ingratiated myself, I, I ingratiated myself into the society in Norfolk because they were also impressed that I had been to Pitcairn because so few of them had been. Mm. Um, and they kind of see Pitcairn as this, this Mecca, this Jerusalem, mm. you know, the, the origin point of their very distinct culture and nationality. And um, just just to contextualize for listeners, how far are they away from Tahiti? Um, so I would think of Pitcairn as being halfway between New Zealand and Peru, mm. or halfway between Tahiti and Easter Island. Okay. okay. Um, so um, to give you a sense, French Polynesia is a little bigger than Western Europe okay, in its size. Um, and then Norfolk Island is within the orbit of Australia. Um, so it's a couple hours flight from Brisbane due east. Mm. Mm. Wow. Okay. And, um, and so, yeah, you mentioned your trips, very fascinating stuff. Did, how, do they, how do the islanders view their own heritage? On Pickheron, they see themselves as being members of a living museum. Really? Yeah. And there's, they certainly sort of revel in being special. I mean, it's, it's quite, it, it, it is, I, I believe, that simple. Um, they've been invited all over the world to speak about their shared history and um, they see themselves as royalty in a way mm -hmm. because they are the keepers of this micronation. Um, less so on Norfolk Island. I think because Norfolk Island is connected to Australia by a direct flight and because they are now have been absorbed into the Australian government um, mm -hmm. more readily and are technically a part of New South Wales, um, it's uh, the connection to the outside world is is quite close. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think they aren't, it isn't a living museum as it is on Pickhairn. Interesting stuff. And yeah, I guess um, a bit more recently in 2000, um, we saw a number of um, child molestering cases from it was something like, if I'm right in saying, it was a third of the residents at, at, on Pitcairn. Do you think the legacy of the mutineers had a role to play in this? And how much of a sort of cultural impact did they have, do you think? Certainly. Um, that is one of the toughest things to unpack about the Pitcairn experience because 
uh, it was certainly something that I had to address in my book. And, mm. the, and the, the book seesaws between two timelines, the mutineers timeline, and then 200 years later, my experience on the island. And I want you to feel things for these characters. And I want you to like some of them. I want you to have confused feelings about some of the other ones. Mm. So it was something that I certainly needed to address, but I do it quite late uh, in the book. Um, so that you've already formed opinions about certain characters before yeah. you learn um, that you learn about this. And I think that there is a legacy of um, cross-cultural trauma that mm. makes the molestation trials um, much more complicated and nuanced than the media has portrayed them. Um, so I, um, I think I sort of unpack all of the different points of views on how all of this went down mm. um, and how there were decades of unchecked conduct on the island. Yeah, interesting. And obviously you've made, you've already referenced, you know, the film with Marlon Brando, the novel, all the, the sort of manifold history books that were written on this topic. It's obviously got a huge hold on the kind of cultural imagination of people, particularly in the West, of, of, of you know, Polynesia and, and the Pacific. Do you think that that maybe, you know, had Bly's episode perhaps influenced people like uh, Gauguin or others who went out to this land of, of mystery and, and so on? Certainly. I think that when we conceive of the idea of paradise, why do we think of palm trees and turquoise water? when, uh, you know, we all live in our Judeo-Christian world of Garden of Eden. You know, our first um, touchstone of paradise is a garden, a lush garden, not a sandy, tropical um, beach. And I think the reason that we've had that shift is really and truly because of the mutiny on the bounty. Mm. Uh, when news returned uh, to England that there were individuals who were so charmed by Polynesia that they refused to come home, you know, there were parties in, in London in high society where people um, had uh, pineapples, uh, you know, on their mantle. Pineapples at one time were worth more than gold mm. um, because they were so and so it was this exoticism that was celebrated and you see a trickle down you know into um, even you know Hawaii becomes a state uh, in the United States after World War II right when commercial flying was taking off and uh, that is when Brando's bounty movie uh, was released. Mm. Um, so again, cementing that notion of uh, tropical islands as, as paradise. Fascinating. And, um, and, and and just looking at this episode in history more broadly, what, what, what would you say, and maybe the characters involved, what would you say are kind of key takeaways maybe, yeah, for you or for people in general? I think for me, and I, I sort of say it at one point outright uh, towards the end of the book, is this, um, you can, you know, you can travel to the end of the earth, but you can never really escape who you are. Um, and I think the book, more than just being, a, you know, a swashbuckling adventure, is a meditation on obsession. Um, I think all of the characters are motivated by self-interest. 
Uh, I think in in the way that Game of Thrones really resonated with people um, as an ensemble cast, um, I think that there are elements of this story that is very ensemble as well. Um, and it's just fascinating to watch the psychology of, as all of these people sort of vie uh, for their own happiness and glory, but they all have very different definitions of what that happiness is. Yeah, it's a, it really is a fascinating part of history. If, say, uh, you had the opportunity to sit down with Blythe and his crew, Christian, etc., uh, over a pint of ale today, what would be the one question you'd ask them? <laughs> if they were all, if they were all together, well, if if I had Christian alone sitting in his lonesome perch on Pickheron, looking out at sea and wondering. If if a warship was going to come take him back to England, um, I would want to ask him if uh, he had to do it all over again. What if he had, would he have done it again? Would he have committed mutiny um, if he had a second chance? And my hunch is no. <laughs> and what about the question for Bly? <laughs> my question. Oh my gosh. Um, I think, well, Bly, you know, if, if you fast forward in his life later, he um, experienced two more mutinies, uh, which is certainly a tribute to his character. Um, and he died of uh, hypertension. Uh, so I think his, you know, his blood was always boiling at a higher temperature um than um everyone else and i think i would love to ask him something um very mundane uh like by what makes you happy what puts a <laughs> smile on your face because never has he been uh recorded as ever having a smile <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one to end on um yeah three mutinies is a slightly damning indictment um that draws to a close um, our conversation. So, Brandon, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and thank yeah, you. We recommend anyone to go out and read um, The wow. Far Land. So, buy it. Um, and buy it, yeah. So, thank you very much.